0: You on eight. Two on eight. Okay, you're clear. Stand by for your base.
1: Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. I'm Ross Orpit, and today we have a special new host for you, Will Berry. He is a paramedic and a lieutenant who's going to be joining the team. We're super excited to have him help us create some of these episodes and some of this contact for you. Uh, Will, welcome
0: to the team. Thanks. It's great to be a part of it.
1: Will, you want to tell us a little bit about your background so people can get to know you a little better?
0: Yeah, I did uh, my bachelor's degree in North Carolina Um, right after graduating. I started working in EMS as an EMT, then uh, quickly went to paramedic school. Um, I also volunteer ski patrol. I was a wilderness guide for a long time, and I've been in the role as lieutenant for about three years now.
1: Great. All right. Well, let's dive into this episode. I'm super excited. I brought back the phenomenal-
2: Alexa Camarena-Michel.
1: Toxicology fellow extraordinaire to discuss a potentially very sick, poisoned patient. Alexa, thanks for coming back to the podcast.
2: Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for having me here.
1: So we're going to be talking about calcium channel blocker overdoses and beta blocker overdoses. I'm super excited about this topic. Can you just give us a little brief intro for our paramedics, kind of why this is important for them to really understand?
2: Absolutely. Calcium channel blocker overdoses and beta blocker overdoses are some of the sickest overdoses that you might come across in the field. It's incredibly important that you understand the physiology and have a concrete approach to how you're going to assess and treat these patients. We often talk about calcium channel blocker overdoses and beta blocker overdoses together because they can present quite similarly and are managed similarly.
1: Let's start out by just talking about kind of the background, the mechanism of actions of, uh, let's start with calcium channel blockers.
2: So there are two different types of calcium channel blockers. There's the non-dihydropyridines and the dihydropyridines. Non-dihydropyridines have a higher affinity for the calcium channels in the myocardium. So these patients will likely develop cardiogenic shock, meaning a decreased cardiac output, and will often have both hypotension and bradycardia. Verapamil and Deltiazem are two of the most common examples of non-dihydropyridines, and um, they are typically more deadly overdoses. Dihydropyridines have a higher affinity for calcium channels in the peripheral vasculature, so these patients will likely develop a picture that is more consistent with a vasoplegic shock and will actually potentially have preserved cardiac output. And so for this reason, patients with dihydropyridine overdoses can present with hypotension and reflex tachycardia. Dihydropyridines are the quote-unquote penes, such as amlodipine, nicardipine, nifedipine, et etc. Of course, either of these non dihydropyridines or dihydropyridines in massive quantities will lose selectivity. And so they can affect both cardiac and peripheral vascular systems and result in both cardiogenic shock and vasoplegic shock.
0: So, calcium channel blockers come in two flavors non dihydropyridines and dihydropyridines. The non dihydropyridines, like verapamil and dultiazim, affect the calcium channels in your heart and thus decrease cardiac function whereas the dihydropyridines, which are the calcium channel blockers ending in peen, such as amlodipine, these are going to affect your vasculature, causing distributive shock, or in other words, hypotension with conserved cardiac function. But in massive overdoses, this selectively is lost, and either class can result in both a cardiogenic and distributive shock. What about beta blockers? How are these working?
2: So beta blocker overdose patients will typically develop both hypotension and bradycardia. And in general, beta blocker overdose patients tend not to get quite as sick as pure calcium channel blocker overdose patients. However, there are a couple of beta blocker overdoses that are worth committing to memory that may be an exception to this. Propranolol, in addition to having beta blocker properties, also acts on sodium channels and can be a sodium channel blocker. As a result, these patients can develop QRS widening, which many toxicologists will define as a QRS greater than 120 milliseconds.
1: Why is it important to know and recognize this with propranol ingestions?
2: A widened QRS should be treated just like any other sodium channel overdose, like TCAs or cocaine, with sodium bicarbonate boluses that are titrated to QRS narrowing. Propranolol is also unique in that its lipophilicity will allow it to cross the blood-brain barrier, and it will cause CNS depression and potentially even seizures. Sotolol is the other unique beta blocker to keep in mind in that it can cause QTC prolongation in addition to its beta blocker properties. Magnesium should be administered in these situations just as in any other patient with prolonged QTC in an effort to prevent the development of torsades.
0: Ultimately, though, I think it's really important for people on the street to remember, find the pills the patient took, try your best to identify what they are, and bring them with you to the hospital. All right, beta blockers will cause bradycardia and hypotension. They're often less fatal than calcium channel blockers. But a couple unique points to keep in mind are that propanolol will also act as a sodium channel blocker and may cause prolongation of the QRS. The treatment for this is going to be sodium bicarb, but you may not have a protocol for this, so make sure you contact your medical control to discuss the management. Secondly, sodolol can prolong the QTC, and if you see a prolonged QTC on your EKG, this should be treated with MAG to help prevent torsades again, likely under the guidance of your medical control. Ultimately, these patients can be extremely dynamic, be ready to adapt, and don't forget the basics like the ABCs.
1: So I think it's classically taught that one way to help differentiate between these two overdoses is calcium channel blocker overdoses may develop some hyperglycemia, while those with beta blocker overdoses may remain euglycemic. Uh, Can you talk about why this is?
2: Yeah, that is a great question. So this has to do with the mechanism of action of calcium channel blockers on pancreatic beta islet cells. So pancreatic beta islet cells will require an influx of calcium to cause insulin release from the pancreas. And calcium channel blockers will block this calcium channel influx, and therefore insulin will not be secreted from beta islet cells. So this will result in hyperglycemia. Beta blockers should not impact insulin release, so that will result in just normal glycemia.
1: What about the level of glucose? Can a patient's glucose level help us to determine how sick they are?
2: So there was a retrospective study that looked specifically at diltiazem and verapamil overdoses with this question in mind. Um, those that had a medium median initial serum glucose of greater than 188 milligrams per deciliter tended to get pretty sick while those with a blood glucose less than 122 did not. The endpoints that were considered in this retrospective studies included death in addition to placement of a temporary pacemaker, and the need for vasoactive agents.
1: The paper Alexa is referring to is an article from the Critical Care Medicine Journal published in 2007 entitled Assessment of Hyperglycemia After Calcium Channel Blocker Overdose Involving Diltiazem or Verapamil. Now, it was a small retrospective study.
0: As most tall tox papers are.
1: Right. So what we can take from it is if a patient is hyperglycemic following a calcium channel blocker overdose, they are more likely to get sick. But if a patient is not hyperglycemic, there is still not enough data here to say these patients won't get sick and thus they should still be monitored closely. All right, let's move on to treatment. How do we treat each of these?
2: So if the patient is within a couple hours of his or her ingestion, and does not have CNS depression, and does not have active vomiting, then you can certainly consider giving one gram per kilo of activated charcoal. Beyond this, ultimately, the focus of treatment for patients once they arrive to the hospital should be three things, IV fluids, vasopressors, and potentially high-dose insulin therapy. Pre-hospital, however, there are other agents that you can try to use to temporize these patients until they can be started on these therapies. One of these therapies is calcium. This should be administered if patients have hypotension. You can start with three grams of calcium gluconate. That should be given over a 10-minute period, and this can be repeated after 20 minutes. Keep in mind that while it is effective in improving blood pressure, it is often short-lived and is just a temporizing measure.
1: The three grams of calcium gluconate given over 10 minutes, would you recommend just kind of a slow push of that, or would you put three grams into a saline bag and then infuse that? How do you recommend administering that?
2: I would probably recommend putting it in a saline bag um, just so that you can administer it over a 10-minute period, and really this is three grams to six grams of calcium gluconate. Um, I understand that your transport times are usually around 10 minutes, and so um, I would I would not do a push of calcium gluconate. I would just infuse it slowly over a 10-minute period.
0: Okay, so in this case, calcium channel blocker overdose, who is likely hypotensive and altered, you've probably started a large-bore IV. So according to most resources, a 14-gauge IV, wide open to gravity, will infuse 240 milliliters a minute. So a liter in under five minutes. A 16-gauge will go in 150 milliliters per minute or just under seven minutes. An 18 gauge will infuse at approximately 100 milliliters per minute over 10 minutes. So, if the dose is three to six grams over a 10 minute period, then you're probably safe to put three grams of calcium gluconate into a liter of normal saline and let that run wide open. Now, anything 20 gauge or smaller is going to infuse at a rate of just 60 milliliters a minute or about 20 minutes to infuse a liter. So if the best access you can get is only a 20 gauge or smaller, then it might be best to put six grams of calcium gluconate in the liter bag and infuse wide open for 500 cc's as it'll go in over 10 minutes. As always, label clearly any medication infusion so the receiving hospital can clearly see what is infusing into the patient, taping the vial to the bag is not adequate enough.
1: What about atropine? Is that helpful at all?
2: You can try giving atropine for symptomatic bradycardia, but it will likely not be very effective. And if it is, it will be short-lived. Remember that atropine is an anticholinergic agent and that will work by inhibiting vagal tone, which is not the underlying cause of bradycardia in both calcium channel blocker and beta blocker overdose patients. Another thing that you can try is placing pacer pads, and this is something that you can attempt to try in patients that have symptomatic bradycardia, but remember that this is also unlikely to be very effective as you might have difficulty with obtaining capture for these patients, and remember that cardiac output is a problem in these overdoses, so even if we do get capture, the heart is probably not going to squeeze very well.
1: All right. So we talked about calcium and calcium channel blocker overdoses. I've heard about glucagon for beta blocker overdoses. Can you talk about that?
2: Glucagon makes more sense for beta blocker overdoses as opposed to for calcium channel blocker overdoses. It actually works to bypass the beta receptor to activate cyclic AMP, and this will lead to an increase in intracellular calcium and improve cardiac contractility. So this is a medication that can be administered pre-hospital, but also keep in mind that it does have some downsides. Patients will oftentimes vomit after administration of glucagon, and they will rapidly develop tachyphylaxis and require escalating doses of glucagon for it to remain effective.
0: Yeah, tachyphylaxis is another spelling bee word. It means rapidly diminishing response to successive doses of a drug thus rendering it less effective. So the heart no longer responds the same way at the same dose of glucagon, and you can quickly quit getting the response you want unless you escalate your doses. Unfortunately for us, it's unlikely that we carry enough glucagon on the ambulance to be effective as the recommended adult dose is five to 10 milligrams IV push and the half-life is only 20 minutes. In addition, The side effect of vomiting can make for a bad time in the back of the ambulance, especially if the patient has any sort of depressed mental status.
1: Yeah, honestly, we have much more effective therapies than glucagon that we are about to talk about. And for this reason and all the other reasons you just mentioned, Alexa told me she rarely, if ever, recommends glucagon as a therapy for these overdoses.
2: Ultimately, the focus of treatment for these calcium channel blocker and beta blocker overdoses is going to be IV fluids, vasoactive agents, and high-dose insulin. So after you've started IV fluids, it is incredibly important to remember that we treat overdose with overdose with regards to dosing our vasoactive and inotropic agents. If I am mostly concerned for cardiogenic shock from a non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker or beta blocker, I will reach for epinephrine. If I am more concerned about vasoplegic shock, such as what is seen with our dihydropyridine overdoses, I will typically reach for norepinephrine, and these often require supertherapeutic doses of epinephrine and norepinephrine infusions with doses in the range of 1 to 1.5 mics per kilo per minute.
0: Ross, I'm not a physician, and judging by this vocabulary lesson I'm receiving, I'm definitely not a toxicologist, but that seems like a sledgehammer dose of oppressor.
1: Yeah, no, these really are. The normal recommended dose range for a standard epi or neuroepidrip is in the range of 0.1 to 1 microgram per kilogram per minute. And as a reminder, epi has more inotropy, meaning it's going to give you more cardiac squeeze than neuroepi, which is more of a just pure vasopressor. That's why in the case of decreased cardiac function, Alexa reaches for epi first. Whereas in the case of peripheral vasodilation, like the dihydropyridine, she will reach for neuroepi first.
0: Now in our system, we use exclusively a dirty epi drip for our pressor. So this is going to be One cardiac arrest dose epi or one milligram of epi in a thousand milliliter bag of saline. And this is going to give you a concentration of one microgram per milliliter. If our 14 gauge IV wide open to gravity will infuse 240 milliliters per minute, this is going to be 240 micrograms of epi per minute. For a 100 kilo male, That's gonna be 2.4 mics per kilo per minute. So our dirty epi drip will get us to these doses if you need it.
1: And you talked about using high dose insulin for these overdoses. This doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Can you talk about how this is supposed to work?
2: So remember that the purpose of high dose insulin is that it serves as an inotropic agent, meaning it will improve the contractile force of the heart. The doses are high, with loading doses starting at one unit per kilo, followed by a one unit per kilo per hour infusion. And then, of course, while on this high-dose insulin, patients will require frequent glucose checks. Interestingly, in sick calcium channel blocker overdose patients, they might not even need additional dextrose due to the pathophysiology we talked about before. In fact, a downtrending blood glucose can actually be a sign that the overdose is resolving. I tend to focus on high-dose insulin, less than vasopressors and beta blocker toxicities because of the challenges in maintaining glucose levels in these patients. However, sometimes additional inotropic support is needed, in which case I will absolutely reach for high-dose insulin. Just remember that unlike in calcium channel blocker overdose patients, patients on high-dose insulin therapy and beta blocker overdoses will likely require a lot of dextrose to support the patient's blood glucose. Something to keep in mind is that high-dose insulin actually has vasodilatory effects. So although it will improve cardiac function in the setting of dihydropyridines without cardiac dysfunction, high-dose insulin can actually make things worse.
1: Some groups are actually adopting pre-hospital ultrasound for various uses in the pre-hospital setting. Do you see this being a good adjunct to the care of these patients?
2: Yes, absolutely. I do this at bedside whenever I can. If you have access to pre-hospital ultrasound, this is an excellent use for cardiac ultrasound to get a quick assessment of whether or not there is good cardiac squeeze versus a floppy heart with poor cardiac squeeze.
1: So if you have access to ultrasound and you can do a quick bedside echo and you see vigorous cardiac squeeze in your hypotensive patient, then high-dose insulin is unlikely to be effective. And you should stick with your vasopressors like norepi or epi. Whereas if you see a floppy heart, then you're likely to lean more towards epi, which will give you more inotropy, as well as add-on high-dose insulin, which will improve cardiac contractility.
0: Now, Ross, I know ultrasound does take quite a bit of skilled practice. How reasonable is it for pre-hospital providers with ultrasound to be able to recognize the type of contractility you're describing?
1: Yeah. So what we talk about, and honestly, this is what I do in the emergency department too, is it's, it's either grossly abnormal or it's not. And so if you see a big floppy heart that doesn't look like it's squeezing that hard, then that's abnormal. If you see squeeze, then you're not going to say that's grossly abnormal. And I, I just use a binary approach, even in the emergency department like that. We talked about a bunch of different therapies for these patients, including high dose vasopressor drips, high dose insulin drips, Maybe even things like calcium in saline bags, maybe even glucagon, IV infusions. It seems like we're going to be giving these patients a lot of fluids. And I think in the hospital, a lot of times we can run into problems with managing the amount of fluids we're giving our patients.
2: That's a really important point. A large problem with many of these overdoses is actually trying to manage volume overload. These patients will require high doses of pressors, high doses of insulin, and potentially high doses of dextrose. And all of these medications come in fluid carriers, and thus patients end up receiving just a ton of fluid. So in addition, these patients are typically critically ill, and their kidneys will oftentimes fail. And so they will have a decreased ability to excrete all that fluid. This is not something that you're going to have to worry about on the ambulance but in the hospital we will often place a central line so that we can administer concentrated solutions and cut down on volume.
1: What about ECMO? Is there any role for that in these patients?
2: If patients remain sick despite optimizing medical therapies, these patients may require ECMO. I would not bypass your ambulance to another facility to go to an ECMO center as we can always transfer patients to ECMO facilities later on if that is necessary.
1: All right. That was a great discussion about the pathophysiology and treatment of an incredibly sick patient population. You want to just summarize it for us and bring it all home?
2: So oftentimes in tox patients, we don't necessarily know what patients ingest. So in patients that you suspect have a toxicologic ingestion that have QRS widening, remember, we always give these patients sodium bicarbonate in an effort to narrow that QRS. In patients with seizures, we give benzodiazepines. In patients with QTC prolongation, it is absolutely reasonable to give magnesium. And specifically with regards to calcium channel blocker and beta blocker overdoses, be aggressive with IV fluids. Certainly you can attempt calcium gluconate as a temporizing measure. And then perhaps most importantly, focusing on early high dose vasopressors.
1: All right, Will, As the paramedic in the room who's the only one who's actually still actively practicing on the streets, I was interested to get your thoughts about today's episode and what you learned from Alexa.
0: Yeah, Ross. What struck me listening to Alexa is just how many tools we have to treat these patients. We actually have a lot of therapeutic options on the ambulance. Mainstays of therapy pre-hospitally are going to be fluids and pressors. Epi for cardiac contractility and norepi for peripheral vascular squeeze. However, we have to remember the basics. We're probably looking at a sick altered mental status patient. Do your ABCs well, get a good history and physical exam. In the hyperacute setting, don't forget to consider activated charcoal if you carry it and the patient's mental status will allow it. The final thing that struck me to hear Alexa talk about is how atropine and pacing can be ineffective in bradycardia caused by beta-blocker overdose. Again, you're looking at a patient with altered mental status and bradycardia. Those are normally the first two interventions in the algorithm. You may still wanna try these therapies, but as Alexa mentioned, they're likely to be ineffective. Ultimately, these patients require high order problem solving and you have to be ready to critically think.